Let's hold them up as we pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask your Holy Spirit to open our minds and our spirits and our hearts to hear what you would say to us today. Help us as we share your word. Help us together as a congregation, a body of believers. Not only will we be here, but a doer of your word. We thank you for it. For it's true and it's powerful. And we receive it this morning in Jesus' name. And everybody said, four of us, amen. I was encouraged to hear great reports of Pastor Rogers' preaching ability. I I wasn't doubting it, but it's always good to hear reports. And of course, you know, we're in Romans. And last week, Pastor Roger looked at the problem with man. And uh, I didn't really have a lot of access to the internet when we were away for a number of reasons. But so when I got back, I listened to four messages back to back um, that that I've missed. uh, Romans chapter um, four, four, five, six, and seven. And um, great, great messages. But last week, Pastor Roger talked about the problem of man, the struggle in every Christian's life. And he said there that every Christian's life, there are two natures. There's the old nature that wants to do wrong, and it can't do right even if it wants to do right, but it continually does what is wrong. And then when we become a Christian, we get a new nature, and there's this civil war that goes on in all of our lives. And so Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 7, and it's like the law of gravity. It keeps pulling me down, and the things I want to do I end up not doing the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. And in chapter 7, really, we see a picture of defeat. And uh, then when we come to chapter 8, it's the exact opposite. This is the chapter of victory, great conquest, chapter of success. It's night and day between Romans 7 and Romans 8. And what makes the difference from Romans chapter 7 to Romans chapter 8? The difference in Paul's life? And in your life, between defeat and victory, is the Holy Spirit. And as in one of Pastor Roger's sermons, after he made a point, he said, okay, now we can all go home. Basically, Romans chapter 8 is all about the presence of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 7, that you heard last week, the key word there was I. It's used 47 times in those verses. I, me, my, myself. It's our problem, too. It's our old self. But the secret of Christian living is not living the Christian life on our own, but letting the Holy Spirit live through you. And the key word of Romans chapter 8 is the word spirit. The word spirit is used 19 times in the 8th chapter of Romans. And you get the message very quickly that it's the power of the Holy Spirit. The chapter could be called, that's why we call the message, Life in the Spirit. It describes the benefits and the blessings of having the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, in my opinion, and in many others, this is the greatest chapter on Christian living in the entire Bible. Romans chapter 8. It's such a fantastic chapter. In fact, we can't live in Romans chapter 8 until you've experienced the reality of Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7. You just don't experience... 8 without the reality of 6 and 7. The joy and the victory of this great chapter rests solely on the death and the struggle of Romans chapter 6 and 7. I mean, have you learned the principle in your Christian life that Calvary comes before Pentecost? That the fullness of the Spirit is only possible after having entered into the experience of the death on the cross. I'm not saying we're nailing ourselves to a wooden frame. But as we understand the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and how we too have to die to self. The chapter describes to us the benefits, the kind of life that the Holy Spirit makes possible to live. And these are the benefits of being born again. The key phrase in Romans chapter 8 is in verse 1. And part of verse 1 where it says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The phrase is in Christ Jesus. There's the key phrase. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ is Paul's favorite term to describe the believer. He uses it 164 times in all of his letters. 
In Christ is Paul's favorite term. And so he used it over and over and over, over again. And rather than him calling us believers or Christians or whatever, he calls us people who are in Christ. Are you in Christ? Is Christ in you? Then you can't lose. It's just an amazing relationship that we have when we are in Christ. So Paul starts Romans 8 and talks about those who are in Christ. The very last chapter, the very last verse of the chapter, he says, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He begins with in Christ Jesus and he ends with in Christ Jesus. The two bookends, in Christ. Now friends, we've got to understand this. Romans chapter 8 is for the believer. It's not a chapter for the unbeliever. It's for the believer, those who are in Christ. If a person is not in Christ, I'm sorry, this chapter doesn't apply to them because they're not in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, you have not received Jesus Christ. If you've not asked him to forgive you your sin, not repented of your sin, turned from the sin, and accepted his forgiveness that he gave on the cross, um, you can do that this morning so this chapter can be yours. It's not for unbelievers. The benefits we're going to look at do not apply to everybody. They apply only to those who are in Christ. And so we call this life in the Spirit because you'll see it's the life. Now get this. This chapter describes the life that everybody wants. Everybody, now, believer and unbeliever alike, they want it. Every human being wants what this chapter provides and gives. It is an amazing chapter. We're not going to exhaust it today, but we are going to uh, give, give kind of a highlight, and then in our, in our life groups, hopefully we can talk a little bit deeper in it and about it, but um, um, the last time I preached, I promised I wasn't going to go longer than 55 minutes, and I went 107 minutes, or an hour and seven minutes, so 67 minutes, um, but... Um, We'll see. It's quarter after 11 now. We got this. Life in the Spirit. Because of the Holy Spirit, we have Christ in our lives. Because we're in Christ, number one, we can live a life without condemnation. We can live a life without condemnation. That's in the first four verses. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the to the Spirit. Now, in each one of these points, I want to give you a clarifying statement. It's in your outline. And the one on this one is, friends, God is not angry with us anymore. God is not angry with the believers anymore. We need to let that truth kind of sink. He's not angry. He's, he's not just waiting, this guy waiting around the corner with a two-by-four when you step out of line to belt you one. He's not angry with you. When he looks at the believer, he sees you and I through Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Now, what is condemnation? It's easy to describe condemnation by talking about how you feel. You feel guilty. You know you did wrong, and you're condemned for it. You're on death row. You're in prison. You got caught with your hand in the cookie jar. You feel guilty. You feel fear. You're... you're you fear, there's this fear of punishment. I'm not only guilty, but I'm going to be punished. Something I've done is wrong, and I'm going to be condemned. You feel self-rejection. You blew it. How stupid could I have been? Did I, did I really make that mistake? Now, friends, sometimes, I don't know, you. sometimes there's this, there's this thought in people's minds that the reason why I'm going through this hard, hard difficulty is because God is punishing me here for something I did over here. 
Friends, that is not even biblical. Because you and I as believers, we don't, punishment was paid at the cross. We may be chastised, corrected by the Holy Spirit, conviction on us, but punishment was paid with Jesus Christ. We'll cover that a little later on. So we're not, just because something bad happens here, it's not, oh yeah, that's because, you know, back there I did this, and so now it's payback, God. No, that is not what happens. The Bible says that God doesn't want Christians to live under those feelings of guilt and fear and self-condemnation, rejection. In Romans chapter 7, we, talk, we talked about the struggle that Paul went through when he said, all things I want to do, I end up not doing, and what I want to do, I don't do. And, and you know, that those, he says, I'm miserable because I can't make myself do what I want to do. I know what's right, but I can't do it. And the Apostle Paul is really struggling. the end of chapter 7, he said, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Have you ever felt like that? What's the use? I just can't seem to get past this thing. What a wretched man I am. Chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 8 really should be in chapter 7. It really, in the original, there were no chapter divisions, and whoever put 8 there put it in the wrong place. Because verse 1 and verse 2 should be in chapter 7. And uh, Romans 8, it has to do with the previous chapter. He's talking about the Christian who's struggling. A Christian who is struggling is not under condemnation. The first thing he does is point out that the Holy Spirit is the answer to all the problems he brought up in chapter 7. Who will deliver me? I feel so condemned. I feel so guilty. I don't measure up to God's standard. I don't even measure up to my own. Because of that, I go around with guilt. And the Holy Spirit makes it possible for us to live without condemnation. Now, we, we should... Somehow, some of us here should feel kind of a a relief on our shoulders. We don't have to live with condemnation. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. And these are some of the most important verses on the Christian life that you could read or memorize or meditate on. There is now no. Do you know what the definition of no is? Nada. Nothing. Zippo. Nothing. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. The first benefit of being a believer, being in Christ, is that God is not angry with you anymore. Now, what's the condition for no condemnation? There isn't any. It's not you be perfect and then you won't be condemned, or you keep all the rules and God will think you're okay. All you have to do is be in Christ Jesus, you are the man of the hour. After not preaching for four weeks, I should probably preach longer, but I won't. Friends, the reason we're not condemned is, if you're a Christian, is because Christ took all Let me say it again. We said it before. He took all the condemnation over 2,000 years ago. When he died on the cross, he took all the punishment, all the pain, so the case against you has been closed. Closed. John 3.17 says, and it's, it's not on the screen, not in your, it might be on your outline, just the reference, but... For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. There's one condition for not being condemned. Believe in Jesus Christ. One condition. Believe. Now, the word believe, when you want to expand that, of course, that means... You know, we believe in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. We believe it was for us. We repent and turn from our sin. And so there's a lot in that word, but, but we believe in the, the finished work of Jesus Christ. Notice Romans chapter 8, verse 1 doesn't say, 
Now there isn't therefore no mistakes, no sins, no failures. Friends, how many of you still sin? We all do now because the Bible says he who says he's without sin is a liar. Um, we all sin. We, we make these mistakes. We all fail. But are we condemned? No. There is a law called double jeopardy. Once you've been tried for a crime and set free from it, you cannot be tried for that same crime again. In God's law, Jesus took all of the condemnation that we deserved on himself. And if God were to put it on Jesus and then put it on you and me, that's double punishment, double jeopardy. You can't do that. The reason why you get scot-free is not because you're such a great person, which you may be, but because all of your condemnation was taken over 2,000 years ago by Jesus Christ. 1 John 3.21 says, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. So first of all, there's no condemnation. God's not angry with you. Has he been disappointed? He'll have to answer that. But he's not angry with you that are in Christ. Number two, because we have the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can now live a life without domination. We're free from condemnation, and we're free from domination. Sin cannot control my life anymore. Unless I choose to allow it, to give in to it. People say, I couldn't help myself. If you're in Christ, friends, that is not true. You have a power in you that helps you overcome sin, and that power is the presence of the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5 to verse 17, notice. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Let me ask you this question. Are you in Christ? Because if you're in Christ, you have resident within you, the moment you accepted Christ, the spirit of God came to live inside of you. Now, how much of the spirit of God came to live inside you when you accepted Christ? 10%, 20%? All, all of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not going to, this morning this message is not on a further subject of what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What is speaking in tongues, evidence, or whatever? I'm not, I'm not dealing with that this morning, even though I know it's so vitally important. It is important that we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us because that's how what happened when we came born again. It's also important that the Holy Spirit controls our life and guides our life, teaches us, and leads us into all truth. There's an amazing power of the Holy Spirit in our life if we'll allow Him to help us overcome the things that tempt us and want to lead us astray. If you're in Christ, you have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Amen? Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what their nature desires, but those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Two mindsets. Let me illustrate it this way. Let me ask you this question. How do you view your work? What do you think about your vocation, your calling, the way you make your living? 
Is it to you just a way to earn a living, to keep the wolf away from the door, to feed and educate your children, to supply the fleshly needs of your life, perhaps give you a little status in society? If it is, you have the mind of the flesh, and you're walking according to the flesh. On the other hand, is your work to you God's chosen area for you to exhibit Jesus Christ and the way that you have of glorifying him by faithfulness and willingness to do the tasks that are set before you? Is it the means by which you have of earning money to give to those who are in need around you and to share the abundance that God gives you with others? Is it the way you have of fulfilling the joy of giving and incidentally to provide the supply of food, clothing, and education for your family needs? Well, if it is, you have the mind of the Spirit and you're walking according to the Spirit. I could ask, what about your area of recreation? What is recreation to you? Is recreation a timeout for you where it's just all about you and now you're going to go and have some fun and forget everybody else? Or is your recreation education a time to you know, refresh your soul and, and maybe get some exercise, maybe get some time off somewhere, and at the same time you are feeding your spirit and feeding your soul and being strengthened for when you return to your daily duties that you have been strengthened in the Holy Spirit and just not gone out and playing something all for your own pleasure. Now, I don't lay a trip on you. I'm just trying to show some you know, contrasts of why we do things if we're going to live in the flesh or live directed by the Spirit. Or sometimes our recreation so much of a priority that the Holy Spirit can never disturb our recreation schedule. Now, this is, this is my, I'm sorry, dear, this is my time to go golfing. Yeah, but honey, I really need, sorry, dear. I know none of you are, you know, live in the flesh or live in the Spirit. Verse 6 on down, he talks about the difference between a believer and unbeliever. Verse 6 says, The mind of the sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Which do you want? Sinful man is death, controlled by the Spirit, life and peace. Sometimes we just have to change our mind. Just change our mind. The unsaved person, now I'm speaking generally, I, there are some, we got to understand, there are some unsaved people. They live better than some saved people. Right? I'm not trying to beat up on either one of them, but there's just some, there's some really nice, hospitable, friendly, generous people who are unsaved. So I'm not trying to, you know, tar them with this black brush I'm just talking about the inner person, okay? The inner person, the unsaved person, lives for themselves. They're alive physically, but they're dead spiritually. In verse 7, he says that the unsaved person is hostile toward God. Because the sinful mind is hostile to God, it doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it. It's like song, that Frank Sinatra song, and what song am I referring to? I did it my way. Right? Some of us... We just live, it's my way, you know? And so w- without Christ, it's, it's my way. And that's what the world is saying if they don't know the Lord. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to be my own boss. And it's kind of like rebellion. The unsaved person cannot please God. Those controlled by their sinful nature cannot please God. Then in the next few verses, he talks about the benefits of us having the Holy Spirit in our lives And we now have power to break out of that sin. You, however, are controlled not by your sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not even a Christian, this verse says. The Holy Spirit is not living inside of you. You're not even in Christ. And therefore, You're not a believer. It's a misunderstanding of the Trinity that you get Jesus one time and you get the Holy Spirit later. God is the Holy Spirit, is Jesus, is God. They're all one. Ephesians or Colossians 2 9 says, For in Christ, now just get this for a minute, this theological point. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity 
lives in bodily form in Christ. So the moment that you came and recognized that you were a sinner and you needed forgiveness and you repented of your sin and you invited Christ into your life, you got the whole deal. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The Trinity dwelled in this one, there's three. You know, don't get confused by the word Trinity. So when you accepted Christ, you got everything. All there was of God was in Jesus. So when you became a Christian, you got all there was. The Spirit-filled life doesn't mean you get more of the Spirit. It just means the Spirit gets more of you. The Holy Spirit doesn't come in piecemeal. In Romans, Paul says, if you don't have the Spirit, you're not even a believer. God gives us a Spirit. Therefore, brothers, verse 12 and verse 13, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. We don't have to live according to it. We're not under its domination anymore. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. Verse 15 says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received a spirit of sonship or adoption, and by him we cry, Abba, Father, which means Daddy. When you become a Christian, when you become in Christ, God puts his spirit in your life, and you don't serve God out of fear anymore, but he's like a father to you, a perfect father, not, you know, blemished like sometimes we are or have had. I don't fear God. If you're a Christian, you shouldn't either. Yes, we reverence God. We respect God. We have an awe for God. He's not the man upstairs. He's not the guy up there. There's a respect for who God is. But there's not this fear if you're a believer. He's your father. You're in the family. No longer are we under the law, but we're under a loving relationship. And the Christian life is the life of Jesus Christ lived again through you. It's not our trying to live a life like Christ. That's a misconception. I know there's a great book written in wristbands, you know, what would Jesus do? And those are all great to kind of get us thinking. But it's, it's not about, you know, trying to be Christ-like. It's not even Christ giving us the power to live a life like his. It's not those. It is Christ indwelling us, living his life again through you and me. And that life was designed to be lived right in the roughest, toughest, hardest, most difficult spot on earth. Your home. Your job. Your everyday circumstances right there. It's not having... Okay. Now, what would Jesus do? What would you do, Jesus? What would you do? No, it's the life of the Spirit living in you that you have this relationship with your Heavenly Father. He's your Father. Jesus loves you. God's not mad at you. You're not under condemnation. You just have this loving Father. And so you have the life of Christ in you because you're in Christ. He's in you. And you just allow His life to be lived right through your life every day. Now, does it come like that? I wish. It's a process. It's called growing and maturing in Jesus. And you cannot do it without the help of the Holy Spirit. Can't be done. That's the test of whether you're laying hold of the power of life, of the life of Christ in you. Is your home life different? It doesn't matter how well you talk out in public. But are you different at home? That's the test. For that's where the Christian life is designed to be lived. What are we like at home? What are we like on the job? What are we like on the way to the job? What are we like in the marketplace? What are we like at school or college? Paul said in Galatians 5, 7, King James Version said, You did run well, but who did hinder you? You started out fine. Many of us remember what a change came into our lives when we became Christians. Remember that? I mean, habits changed. Attitudes changed. Outlook changed. We were different. We experienced new joy. We had new power. There was a sense of victory. 
Habits that had defeated us were overcome. What a change it was. Everybody could see the change in our life. And now, gradually, there's come through the years another change in which we see that we've lost interest. We've grown listless. We're indifferent at times to spiritual values. We may still go through the motions of Christianity, and I'm speaking in general terms now, please understand. But there's no power. There's no glow. There's no fruit in our lives. Many of us have found ourselves in Romans chapter 7, living a life of defeat and despair. We're running the race, but we're running it like paralyzed people, hobbling along in feeble efforts of the flesh. We're walking according to the flesh and not according to the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit makes possible a life without condemnation. We're free. A life without domination. We don't have to sin. God gives us a power to not do it. Number three, the Holy Spirit makes possible a life without desperation. Without desperation. Even in our suffering, we have hope. That's what Romans 8 teaches. No matter what happens in your life, no matter what trials, there's hope. No situation is hopeless if you have the Holy Spirit in your life. So verse 18 to 26 says, notice, consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation had been groaning as in in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves. Who have, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently in the same way. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Paul says, sure, we're, gonna, we're going through some suffering. When you became a Christian, did God take all your problems away? I'm sorry, ladies, you were still married to him. God doesn't take your problems away, whatever they might be, right? I'm you know, just teasing there, but... When you became a Christian, God didn't take away all your problems. You probably got a few because all of a sudden you had a new enemy. God has not promised us a problem-free, stress-free life. Christians are not exempt from suffering. But Christians have something that non-Christians don't. They have a hope that gets us through the suffering. You can't compare the glory that you're going to have with the present suffering. Even the psalmist David said, Yea, that I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I'm not staying there. I'm not camping. I'm not pitching a tent. I'm going through. And the scripture says he's with us always. He never leaves us, never forsakes us. He's always there. And we are learning some of the things we need to learn only through suffering. There's some things you'll never learn if everything just kind of comes your way. For our light... Or 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, Therefore we do not lose heart. For though outwardly we're wasting away, but inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Even the suffering in our lives, God has a purpose for it. He's producing some things in our life. Notice Paul says, for our light and momentary trouble. Now that is the understatement of the decade. Shipwrecked twice. Beaten five times. Left for dead twice. Stoned. Whipped. Put in jail. 
no food. This guy, Paul, his entire life was one big trial after another, and he calls them light and momentary troubles. If that's a light and momentary trouble, what is real trouble like? <laughs> light and momentary trouble. God says those have a purpose. We can hope for two things. We, can, we have the hope of future re- resurrection, verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, grown in- inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We hope for a resurrected body. Not that, I hope, I hope, I hope. There's this hope. There's this truth. There's this realization. And it's good news when you think of your aches and pains now. One day you're going to be given a perfect body. Now what's a perfect body going to look like? Chook, stand up. There's a perfect body right there, right? Amen? Okay, thanks, Chooks. And, and, and color. Perfect. And you have a perfect body now, but the body that you're going to get, no aches, no pains, no... Sister, you're not going to need oxygen tank walking beside you. We have the hope of a resurrected body. We think it's kind of perfect now, you know, when you do a little painting on it or whatever we have to do, grooming. But then, then, this body that we're going to have is going to be amazing. And we have this hope. Talk to somebody who isn't in Christ and you ask them, so you can go to heaven? I hope so. Friend, if you're in Christ and you're still saying, I hope so, we need to talk. These things are written, the scripture says, that ye may know that you have eternal life. Not hope so. I think so. Maybe. My good, low way, my bad. No. We're going to have a new body. A perfect body. This future resurrection. Secondly, we have the hope that the Holy Spirit is praying for us even when we're going through these troubles. Now I know we know scripture says Jesus is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. Also, the Holy Spirit is praying for us in groans and others and we don't even, when we don't even know what to pray. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now that's something to be thankful for. When I don't know how to pray, what to pray, the Spirit of God wants to pray through me. Because I don't even know how to pray. And knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will, that scripture says. Have you ever been so confused or in someone's pain that you didn't know how to pray? The Bible says that when you cannot even express the hurt in your life, the Holy Spirit prays for you, looks inside your heart, sees things even you can't see, and prays them to God. Even in our weakness, the Holy Spirit prays for us. Oh, wow. Also, we don't live a life of desperation. We don't live a life of desperation. There are three kinds of groanings here. Creation groans, the believers groan, and the Holy Spirit groans. Creation is growing, it's subject to frustration. It says there, we know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. The world is not evolving, friends, the world is devolving. The world is not physically getting better and better, it's decaying. When God made it back there in the Garden of Eden, that's as perfect as it was ever going to get. Since then, sin entered into the world, it's all been downhill. More problems, less ozone, creation groans because there's sin in the world. I just read the other day that, um, what's that big uh, volcano just across the border? Um, Or it's a latent volcano, it's going to blow one day. Um, in that big park in the state. Yeah. Yellowstone Park. It says, sometime in the future, that, the ground is already rising. That volcano is going to blow, and the ash is going to be 100, at least 100 times more than Mount St. Helens. You talk about the earth groaning. 
And they talk about the, you know, the earthquake fault along the West Coast, you know, Vancouver and Victoria, they're all going to be drowned. I mean, you know, all those things. And, and the whole world is going berserk. You know, the earth and all the people and everything, is, you know, it's, it's just creation is groaning and the believers groan. Verse 23, we ourselves groan. Why? Because we're anxious to get away from the pressures, the pains, the problems of the world. And the Holy Spirit groans. He prays for us. Friends, God is concerned about your aches and your pains. Paul admits that we don't always know how to pray, but it's very clear that we know we should pray. How many know we should pray for Christians? Half of us. We should pray if we're Christians. In fact, let me just tell you this as a side. Prayer is the instinctive mark of the believer in Jesus Christ. Remember when Paul was converted on the Damascus Road? Remember the story in Acts? He's, he's going heading towards Damascus. He's going to persecute and get rid of some Christians and some believers. And he has an encounter with God. And God knocks him flat on his backside. He's blinded. And uh, so then he's, he's led into the city because he's blind. And he's led into the city. And God says, okay, I'm leading you to the city. And I'm going to show you something there. And then, then God speaks to Ananias and says to Ananias, I want you to go to see Saul whose name is going to be changed to Paul. I want you to go see Saul and, um, because um, he needs to be baptized, etc. And Ananias says, as all of us say, but God. This guy's he, he's the terrorist of terrorists. He doesn't like the believers. He's trying to get rid of as many as he can. And you want me to go and admit to him who I am? And, 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 and this is what God says. Here's the hallmark of the believer. I want you to go see him. He is praying. That's incredible. He's praying. Never mind what he used to do, but the hallmark of a transformed, changed life seems to be he's praying. Prayer is the most distinctive mark of a person who's in Christ, if you don't pray or have any desire for prayer, what is that saying about your relationship with Jesus Christ? Friends, we cannot live without praying. And I'm not talking about, thank you, Lord, for this food. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray that, Lord, my soul to keep those. I'm talking about conversing with God regularly, often. It's the simplest and best expression that we have of our dependence upon God. People who feel independent and able to run their own lives never pray or very seldom pray. It is only as we come to the place of realizing we can't handle everything, we begin to pray. And many times we've gone for a long time without sincerely praying. And all of a sudden something happens and then how many prayer lines can I get a hold of? How many prayer requests can I send in? Who can I gather now? I wonder, I know this isn't true, but I'm wondering if at that point we start praying and God says, who's that? Haven't talked to that person in a long time. I don't think he'd do that, but prayer is crucial to the Christian life and to the life in the Spirit. When we get through this chapter, we're going to understand why Christians ought to be the most positive people in the world. We've been given a life without condemnation. God's not angry at you anymore. We've been given a life without domination. I don't have to give in to bad habits anymore. The Holy Spirit will give me the power to change. We've been given a life without desperation. No matter what the situation, it is not hopeless. Because the Holy Spirit is praying for me right now. Wow, Jesus is making an intercession for me, the Holy Spirit's praying for me, and the Father is rooting for me. How can anything go wrong? How can we lose? When we're in Christ, God plans your life without miscalculation. Verse 28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Friends, God never makes a mistake. 
That's what this chapter teaches. God does not make mistakes in your life. Everything that happens in your life and in my life, there's a purpose for it. He's allowed it. It fits into his pattern. Some of the most famous verses in the Bible are, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Friends, nothing happens in your life where God all of a sudden says, I didn't see that one coming. He knows everything. He never makes a mistake. He has a purpose. If you're a Christian, absolutely nothing ever comes into your life by accident. Nothing. The source of your problems isn't the issue. You may have brought it on yourself. Maybe brought on by other people. Might be brought on by the devil. Doesn't matter. He still can use it. I used to try to figure out all the sources of my problems. Did I bring this on myself? Did someone else? Hoping to blame somebody to pass the buck. Adam, he took it like a man. He blamed his wife. Right? And she blamed the snake. And the snake blamed, I don't know who. No, we don't do that. We try to blame circumstances, try to blame things, and try to figure out where it's all coming from. What is God's purpose? It's, it is not just the pleasant, delightful, anticipated things of our lives. Not just the beautiful sunsets and moving songs that we, we find God at work. In all things, he works for our good. In all things. And verse 28 makes no sense if you don't read verse 29. and explains the purpose mentioned. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Predestined, you say, oh, I know what that means. God looks over the whole world. says, now these are going to go to hell. These are going to go to heaven. Friends, predestination has nothing to do with going to hell. Okay? In the word of God, predestination is never related to that in any way whatsoever. To think of it in these terms is unbiblical. Predestination has to do only with believers... It simply says that God has selected beforehand the goal toward which he's going to move every one of us who believes in Christ. And that goal is conformity to the character of Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with eternal destiny. You know, all these people get all hung up on it. And God's number one purpose in your life is to make you like Jesus Christ. It's been God's plan from the very beginning of time. When God made man, he said, let us make man in our image. That's been his purpose right from the beginning. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Proverbs says, The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wishes. God even uses the wrath of men to praise him. Pharaoh in the Old Testament kept hardening his heart. He thought he had everything under control. But God was even using that for his ultimate purpose. There is such security in being a person in Christ. Even when we make dumb decisions, God has a way of using it for good in your life. Isn't that great? How many of you have ever made a dumb decision? We're getting more and more honest in this room. God is in this place. I mean, we've all made dumb decisions, right? It's amazing how God can take some of our dumbest decisions and turn it around. And it's not always without some discomfort. So many people are so uptight about God's will, they think if they make the wrong turn someplace, they're going to have God's second best in their life. You don't find the phrase second best in the Bible. It's not there. God even saw those mistakes you were going to make before you made them. And he'll use everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, God will never give up on you. I think there's a song we sing about never give up. God will never give up on you if you're in Christ. Never, never, never. Even people who aren't in Christ, he says he's not willing any should perish, but all should come to repentance. What he starts in your life, he's going to finish. He doesn't lead you out on a limb and then cut the limb off. What God starts, he finishes. It's all part of his plan. Because of the Holy Spirit, we can live without condemnation. He's not angry. Without domination. We don't have to give in to sin. 
He can give me the power to break those habits. We're not trying to work ourselves up on our own power and be good on our own strength. We live a life without desperation. Even in our suffering, we have hope. Where our bodies are going to be resurrected, we have the hope of the Holy Spirit praying for us. He gives us a life without miscalculation. God never makes mistakes. His purpose is always greater than my problems. The problems I face may be legitimate, but they are light and momentary afflictions from an eternal perspective. Fifth, when we have the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can now live a life without intimidation. Without intimidation. Verse 31, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? If you're in Christ, one plus God is a majority. We ought to be the most confident people in the world. Not self-confident, self-reliant, but confident in who we are because of Christ. We're in him. My life is hid with Christ in God. Where are you? My life is hid with Christ in God. I am so protected in that position, in that place. Who will bring any charge against those God has chosen? Verse 33. It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? If I like me and God likes me, if you don't like me, that's your problem. I like me. God likes me. And I like you. So get over it. It is amazing. We don't need to be intimidated by anything or anybody. God likes me and I'm under no condemnation. Now I'm not, we don't want to be, you know, gratuitously proud or all those kind of things, but the Holy Spirit's praying for us. Jesus is praying for us. When you're criticized, don't worry about it. If it's true, listen and learn from it. If it isn't, ignore it and forget it. Ultimately, only God is the judge of your life. Don't be intimidated. He's the, a life without intimidation is a life of confidence. Everybody wants confidence, but you don't find it in self-help books. You find confidence in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 13.6 says, So we say with confidence, The Lord's my helper. I'll not be afraid. What can man do to me? Proverbs says, fear of man is a snare. The moment you start worrying about what other people think, you're in trouble. You start being manipulated by them. The Lord's my helper. I won't be afraid. What can man do to me? One plus God equals a majority. Verse 37 says, and all of these things were more than conquerors. Friends, you're not a victim. You're a victor. We don't have to live as a victim. We're, more, we're, we're, we're super conquerors. When things get you down, you're choosing to let them get you down. We're victors. We're super. Now, I know there's spiritual battles, spiritual warfare. I understand all that. But Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What have you been telling yourself that you could never do? Stop. If you have the Holy Spirit in your life, you can live a life without condemnation, without domination, without intimidation, without desperation. You don't have to be intimidated by anyone or any circumstance. Six, have the Holy Spirit in your life. You can live without limitation. You can live without limitation. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he now not also with him graciously give us all things? When God sent Jesus to die on the cross for you, he made the ultimate sacrifice. There isn't anything more that he can do, then come and die on the cross for you. That ought to show all of us that he loves us. God loved you enough to send Jesus Christ to die on the cross. Don't you think he loves you enough to make sure you have a job? Make sure you have clothes? To make sure that you can, he can care for your other needs that you have on a day-to-day basis? They're minor in comparison. When God saved you, he solved our biggest problem. Everything else is downhill. If God loves us enough to send Jesus to die, he loves you enough to meet all your other needs. Now, is there something to learn through the difficulty? Absolutely. But he wants you to live a life without limitation. And number seven, the believer with the Holy Spirit had been given a life without separation. Verse 35, 
Verse 39 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness, danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present things or the future, nor any powers, neither any height or depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate me from God's love. What an incredible truth to realize I will never go through an experience in life by myself. No matter what happens in the future, God's going through it with me. Although I don't know what the future holds, as we've often said, we know who holds the future. You heard the story of the man who died and went to heaven. They were showing movies of the of everybody's life, and it was pictured as this man was walking along the beach, and there was two sets of footprints up to some certain instance in his life, and then some trials, there was only one set. And he said, what happened, Lord? Weren't you there? And God said, that's when I was carrying you. We go through some pretty hard things at times, and we need to be reminded and realize that there isn't any circumstance, situation, body, nothing, 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 nothing can separate you from the love of God. That's a comforting thought. John ten twenty eight says that we're in his hand and no man can pluck us out. Once you've placed your life in God's hand, no one can remove you. No one. What if you sin? You're still a child of God. You can sin. God can discipline you. He can make your life miserable. You can lose rewards in heaven. But nothing can separate you from his love. You're in his hand. He said in Matthew twenty-eight twenty, Lo, I'm with you always. When you go to work, on the freeway, transit, bus, whatever, he's there. In the previous verse, in Matthew 28, God says, Fear not, for I have called you by name. You're mine. How many people are in the world right now? Billions. Billions. Yet God knows where you are, who you are. You can relax in God's plan. Isaiah 43, verse 2, When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you pass through the fire, you'll not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. We can relax in his plan, recognize his presence, rely on his protection. No matter what we go through, God will be with you. Notice it doesn't say, when you pass around the waters and when you pass over the fire, he says, through We don't like to go through our problems. We like to go around them. We want to back off from them. God's not taking you away from your problems, but he will take you through them, and he'll never leave you. I trust that you've caught a glimpse this morning of the wonderful privileges we have as Christians, as believers. The gospel is such great news. Is this not the ultimate lifestyle to live in Christ? His Holy Spirit living in us, leading us, guiding us, and further message we can talk about, the, you know, the, the further life in the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and all those kinds of things. But we can now live a lifestyle without condemnation, without domination. We don't have to be controlled by circumstances or habits. A life without desperation, no matter what I'm suffering or going through, there's hope. A life without miscalculation, even when I make bad choices, God doesn't make any mistakes. A life without intimidation, he'll provide the power that I need. With him on my side, I don't have to be afraid. A life without limitation, he provides for all of my needs. A life without separation, nothing can separate me from God's love. That's such confidence. That's such good news. The tragic news is that the world is more ready to receive this message than we are ready to share it. That's the tragic news. We act sometimes, I think, friends, like we're trying to give people some disease or something. I don't want to offend anybody by witnessing to them. How is that going to offend anybody? Wouldn't you like to live guilt-free, have confidence, have your prayers answered, know that you're going to go to heaven when you die? How is that going to offend anybody? The devil has pulled a fast one on some believers. We think that everybody is out there saying, I love living in guilt. 
I love being controlled and manipulated by my habits. I love the fact that there doesn't seem to be any purpose in life and when I get suffering, I don't know why it's happening. The answers are here. And the devil has convinced us that the world isn't interested in it. We just need to be able to take the Holy Spirit in our lives and share as we live our life, share the life that Jesus came to give the world. Without question, anybody. What a contrast between Romans 7 and Romans 8. Romans 7, defeat. Romans 8, victory. Romans 7, I'm trying to live my best. I'm trying my best to live the Christian life. Romans 8, I relax and let the Holy Spirit of God live through me. What a difference. It's like that song, what a difference you made in my life. That blind singer, you know. What a difference you made in my life. What a difference the Holy Spirit makes in our life. And I challenge you, let's go over your frustrations. Yield to the Holy Spirit. If you've never asked Jesus Christ into your life, do so this morning. Don't wait another minute. Make sure you're in Christ. By promising to be good? No. By saying, Jesus, I just want to put my trust in you. Save me because I can't do it myself. I want to live for you. Take away my sin. Put your Holy Spirit in me. Friends, if you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit in you. He's been in your life since you became a Christian. You may not have known it. You may have been ignorant of it. Maybe you haven't felt it. Doesn't make any difference. You can quench the Holy Spirit. You can grieve him. That means limit him in your life. But you don't need to say, Holy Spirit, come into my life. He's already there. He's already, he doesn't kind of come on Sunday morning and leave on Monday. He's already there. When you accepted Christ, he came to dwell. This is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. We can say, Father, thank you for Romans chapter 8. I conclude with this. A lady by the name of Ruth Calkin wrote this in her paraphrase of Romans 8. God, I may fall flat on my face. I may fail until I feel old and beaten and done in. Yet your love for me is changeless. All the music may go out of my life. My private world may shatter to dust. Even so, you hold me in the palm of your steady hand. No turn in the affairs of my fractured life can baffle you. Satan, with all his braggadocia, cannot distract you. Nothing can separate me from your measureless love. Pain can't. Disappointment can't. Anguish can't. Yesterday, today, tomorrow can't. The loss of my dearest love can't. Death can't. Life can't. Riots, war, insanity, unidentity, hunger, neurosis, disease. None of these things, nor all of them heaped together, can budge the fact that I'm dearly loved, completely forgiven, and forever free through Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. Forever. When you're in Christ. Father, I thank you for the book of Romans. I thank you for the truths that are embedded in every verse and phrases. Thank you for the truths that we can see in just some of them in Romans chapter 8. When we're in Christ, oh Lord, help us to realize the blessings and the promises that are ours as we're in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The things that you want to teach us and show us and reveal to us and help us with, we can just relax and allow the life of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the love of our Heavenly Father be lived out in every action of every day, 
Help us when we forget. Help us when we fail. May we be reminded there is now therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ. And all of these seven points, oh God, help us. Those who may be here this morning and maybe their lives have not been where they ought to be lived in Christ. Help them, O God, to not live under condemnation, but to come before you and say, Lord, forgive me. I haven't realized the potential of your Holy Spirit in my life and I'm trying to do it in my own flesh. Help me. Show me. Lead me and guide me. Strengthen me. May these truths be pillars in my life as I endeavor to allow you to live that blessed life through me. Help me not to fear, be intimidated. But, oh God, strengthen me, I pray. Help me, forgive me. Oh God, I I need you. I need you every moment of every day. I'm so glad for your presence right now. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Friends, it, it's not just a saying. It's, it's a powerful blessing from the word of God. And I pray you receive this, this morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. Lift up his countenance on you and fill you with peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. God bless you.